flooding. Another 10,000 remain missing. Two dams failed on Sunday right when a strong Mediterranean storm hit the area, unleashing severe flash flooding throughout the coastal city of Derna. City officials say the death toll could be as high as 20,000. But right now, On Bowels with Leland Bittert is on, and we'll have more on how Hunter Biden became the first child of a sitting president to be indicted. I'm Elizabeth Vargas. See you again tomorrow. On the program tonight, Bidenomics or bust? We are the new the mighty, mighty union. One of the biggest strikes in American history is moments away. Can the commander-in-chief prevent an economic collapse? First, do no harm. I feel like parents hear now that, do you want a dead daughter or a living son? At just 16, she transitioned from her to him. But this can't be the right way. Will lawsuits against doctors stop gender reassignment surgeries on young kids? Thinly veiled anti-Semitism. UPenn hosts a, quote, Palestinian festival. Why hate from the left is celebrated in the Ivy League. And taking command, a body language expert breaks down last night's town hall to tell us what Mike Pence really tried to say. Welcome to the Ferris Show on television. We're back tonight in Washington. Democrats are right. Nobody but the president's son would have gotten indicted today on gun charges. Hunter Biden now faces formal charges for lying on a federal firearms application. It has far more political implications than it does criminal. We're going to get to that in a minute. But we'll start with what is a five-alarm fire in our economy. We are just five hours away from a massive auto workers strike. The deadline is midnight. It's 7 p.m. Eastern. 150,000 members of the United Auto Workers say they will walk off the job at the big three automakers. You're looking at live pictures of the General Motors building in Detroit. Sun hasn't set there yet. The leaders of the big three companies say they do want to reach a deal, but they argue the union's demands are too steep. They want, the unions want, a 36% pay increase over the next four years, cost of living adjustments reinstated into their wages, an end of the tiered wage system in a 32-hour work week. The cost of living adjustments are so important because of inflation. All of those are pretty big asks, but the union has reasons to be scared. President Biden's push towards electric vehicles threatens to shut down UAW plants and put them out of a job. They also, of course, feel abandoned by a president who promised up, down, left, and right to stand up for labor. Call me what your president just did, the most pro-union president in history. I promised you I would be, and I commit to you as long as I have this job, I will remain that. I make no apologies for being labeled the most pro-union president in American history. I'm proud of it. And I'm proud to be the most pro-union president according to the experts about in American history. Until today, because this strike, as we have reported before, pits Biden's pro-labor history against his newfound climate obsession. And his affinity towards electric vehicles and climate change is winning. The auto workers are losing. 
We showed that live picture of the General Motors headquarters. As far as we can tell, the president is not calling the head of the big three and saying, make a deal. Mr. Biden so far has not budged or stood up for the UAW. And the rest of America, along with the auto workers, is going to lose. The cars that come off the line at Ford and GM in Detroit are made from parts manufactured all over the upper Midwest, Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, Pennsylvania, Ohio. Most of those parts arrive just in time for assembly. So even a brief shutdown of the big three automakers and all of those plants, it will close hundreds, if not thousands, of other plants where the UAW doesn't have any workers that makes the parts. The exact cascading effects of the strike are hard to predict, but it's somewhere between bad and awful. And it couldn't come at a worse time. Gas prices are up for an eighth straight day, up 4% from last year. Few things impact inflation, fuel inflation like gas prices. What you see here is the inflation-adjusted median household income. In other words, the buying power of the typical American family. So from 2010 through 2021, the buying power skyrocketed. People felt like they were richer. They felt like they were doing better. Now it's going down almost as fast is it went up. An auto worker strike will only add to the economic pain, not just for the workers, not just for the people who supply the parts to the auto manufacturers, not just to all their families and communities, but the entire country. It's coming. This will make President Biden's economic headache a mind-numbing migraine, something he appeared oblivious to at an economic speech this afternoon. This is the mega, bu- the, the, the mega budget. You know, I, I want you to take a look at it. I think we have other copies of it. If we don't, we'll get you some. So since I've come to office, all they've really done is attack me and my economic plan. Went on to say that his economic plan is working. By example after example, he seems guided by climate orthodoxy rather than economic reality. That isn't a criticism. It's an observation and a political reality. He says it's an existential threat to humanity. Almost every day, an increasingly hostile media pushes Mr. Biden on various points, his age, the Hunter problem, the problems keep coming from the Hunter problem, his approval numbers, much of which come from the lingering economic strain in America. And he now has defectors inside his own party. In fact, CNN just did a devastating fact check of the president. We're going to show you that in a minute. But a lot of that exists in the Washington echo chamber. Very rarely does Washington and reality collide. That will happen at midnight tonight when 150,000 auto workers walk off the job. And that is a five alarm fire. George Will is here, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, News Nation senior political contributor. The, the famous old line, right, is what's good for General Motors is good for America. Is the opposite true? What's bad for General Motors? A strike on General Motors bad for America? It's bad for America, but marginal. You know, you're talking about 150,000 UAW workers. That's a shadow of what it was 40 years ago. I can tell you right now who's going to win this strike. Alabama, Kentucky, Tennessee, South Carolina. All red states. All red states. All right-to-work states. All southern states. And manufacturers are going to say, we don't need this. Let's go south. All right. In, In terms of just broad economic terms... Are we right to point out that the president who has made all of these pronouncements about his union loyalties has chosen a different horse to ride? Yes. And the fact is what we've learned in the last few days with reports from the Census Bureau is that Americans, all his talk about uh, I'm a union guy and I'm for the working guy. 
Working guys gotten poorer during the Biden presidency. Wages have gone up, as you'd expect, in a very tight labor market. But even in a tight labor market, they've gone down. Uh, and the interesting thing, Leland, is the demographic that suffered most are college-educated people who are, as we now know, largely a Democratic constituency. All right. Uh, Biden's relationship with the auto industry unions, labor organizations contributed $27.5 million to a campaign and other groups that support him. Compared to Donald Trump, took in less than 360000 from these groups. Wayne County, Michigan, Detroit, 2020. Very high concentration of union workers, of auto workers. 2020 election, overall Wayne County was a definitive vote for Biden at 68.12%. We know that the 2024 election is going to be decided in some combination of Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and then down through the South. How profound of an effect is the shift from pro-union to pro-climate change going to be on the voters in those states? It's clearly annoying the workers of the United Auto Workers. They feel as though they're being sacrificed for climate goals. But remember this. The secret of the labor support for the Democratic Party is that most of the unionized people in the United States are in the public sector. They are public employees unions, teachers particularly, but ask me, the state and local county workers. What do you make, and I'm, I'm just now thinking of this because we had the Mike Pence town hall last night, and he was... He, he was fairly unsupportive. He tried to sort of pay lip service to it, but fairly unsupportive of, of the United Auto Workers. Given that now working class blue collar Americans are now becoming more and more Republican, are you surprised that there's not any of the Republican presidential candidates now trying to peel off support from the UAW and trying to champion their cause right now? A little bit. But remember, again, as you were saying, so many of the people who are making the automobiles, actually producing, putting things together, aren't in the UAW. They're down south in the, in the, the Toyota, Honda, BMW, Mercedes workers down south don't feel much solidarity with the UAW up north. They feel they're rivals. Well, not only are they rivals, but the UAW guys are a lot better paid sometimes. Well, they're rivals also because the American automobile industry, the big three, so-called, are now almost public utilities. They are so heavily subsidized by the government in the name of green subsidies that we can consider them semi-nationalized. Huh. Yeah, that's a good point, which would give the, which would give the president even more leverage that he's not using right now. Because George, good to see you, sir. See Thank you. you very much. Ordinarily right now, we'd have a lawyer on to talk about the Hunter Biden indictment. Special counsel David Weiss indicted the president's son on three charges related to purchasing a gun while addicted to drugs. Hunter allegedly lied on the background check form. To be fair, there are a lot of people who use drugs and purchase guns. Rarely do they get prosecuted unless they use the gun in a crime, which Hunter did not do. He's only being prosecuted because he's the president's son, and we all know about his addiction. What happens in Hunter's legal case amounts to interesting gossip in D.C., but it represents just one more chink in the president's armor. For example, today, CNN, of all places, ran a devastating fact check of Mr. Biden. This president has a pattern at this point of either inventing or embellishing stories about his own past, his biography. He did it three times in one speech last month alone. Democrats are starting to abandon Mr. Biden. This has started and we predicted it, much like how Ernest Hemingway described going broke. First slowly, 
then all at once. Evidence Nancy Pelosi even has questions. Is Vice President Kamala Harris the best running mate for this president? He thinks so, and that's what matters. People shouldn't underestimate what Kamala Harris brings to the table. But do you think she is the, the best running mate, though? She's the vice president of the United States. So when people say to me, well, why isn't she doing this or that? I say, because she's the vice president. That's the job description. You don't do that much. We'll bring in Scott Tranner, director of data science for Decision Desk HQ. Kirk Bardella, Democratic strategist, L.A. Times contributor, former House GOP Oversight Committee member. Gentlemen, good to see both of you. Kurt, um, are Democrats, I don't want to say starting to get scared, but it appears as though that they are not as unified as they once were. Yeah, I mean, I think they should be concerned. And they should be more concerned, by the way, about the economic issues right now than anything involving Hunter Biden, anything involving impeachment. The economic stuff cuts through all of the D.C. chattering class BS that we all might be enveloped in every day. But people are feeling real pain in this country, in their day-to-day lives. And, you know, they're not tuning in every minute of every day to cable news. They're seeing. We're, we, are, we are indeed glad that our viewers are tuning in Which we in love our day. viewers. But we do like, love our but viewers. But your viewers know they're paying more for gas at the pump. They're paying more for groceries. They're, the cost of living is, is, is more. It's harder to live right now on what they have. And that's a big problem for Joe Biden. All right. uh, President Biden uh, today at the end of his speech. Take a listen. Let me close with this. There's a lot more I know we could talk about. I wish I had a chance to take all your questions, but I'm going to get in real trouble if I do that. (laughs) He said, I'm going to get in real trouble if I take I take your questions. I guess this is what I'm getting at. Is the president losing his most important constituency, which is the the advocacy media on the left that now appears to sort of wonder what's happening here. You know, one of the strengths that Biden used to have was that he would be the guy that would take your question. He would be the guy that if a reporter came up to him or someone shouted the question, that he would be kind of that freewheeling Joe. And there was something endearing about it. Even if he didn't say the right thing all the time, people just kind of liked that part of him. Now that he's kind of in this controlled environment and he's not being as forthright, not being as loose with just talking to people like a normal person, I think that hurts him, actually, because that's the one thing he had going for him. And if you take that away... He's just some guy in an empty shirt. Right. He's some guy who is is totally scripted and, and says what he's sometimes told to say. Uh, David Ignatius, Washington Post. Uh, this came out uh, a couple of days ago, but it still was a meaningful watershed moment, Scott. I don't think Biden and Vice President Harris should run for re-election. It's painful to say, given my admiration for much of what they have accomplished. But if he and Harris campaign together in 2024, I think Biden risks undoing his greatest achievement, which was stopping Trump. Um, Obviously, that doesn't really matter much to the electorate, what David Ignatius says in the Washington Post. Does, though, sort of this letting out of the air of support that we're seeing across Washington and across usually Biden-friendly media change things? Absolutely, right? To underline what Kurt was saying, look, everyone has an opinion about Joe Biden, right? The AP Newark poll that David Ignatius mentioned, 67% of voters think that he's too old. If he looked at the News Nation poll that we released last week, the vast majority of, of voters think that they want, or I'm sorry, Democratic voters want another opportunity or another candidate. Those numbers, he needs to change. He needs to change because he, and he needs to talk more. He needs to answer more questions. He needs to be out there. And whether or not he does it is the big question. But if he doesn't, those numbers are going to stay the same or get worse for him. How 
worried when you you know you have a lot of Democratic friends who speak candidly in a way they don't speak on television. <laughs> How don't use names. You can if you want to, but don't use names. How worried are Democrats that this is going to go from bad to worse, both with the economy and then with what Scott was laying out? There's very real concern. I mean, let's be honest. Anytime that you're the incumbent and you're looking at numbers this bad, that's not a good thing. I don't care what spin you want to try to put on it. It's not good. It's a position of weakness. Now, the one thing that I think Democrats are feeling slightly better at this week is impeachment is one way to rally the Democratic Party base around someone that they're not particularly enthused about right now. So depending on how Republicans play impeachment, that could actually help Biden with his base. Never underestimate a Republicans' ability to screw things up, right, Scott? <laughs> Either party. That applies to both. <laughs> <laughs> and a diplomat as well. It is yeah. good to see you, my friend. Thank you. Good to see you, Kurt. Coming up, a lawsuit that lays bare the true and tragic costs that can get lost in the trans children debate. Luke Hine is suing the University of Nebraska Medical Center over claims that doctors there talked her into medical interventions that at the time, she says, she could not fully understand. I am someone who went through the gender-affirming care industry as a minor. Um, and a little bit of background about me. I was a teenager with multiple comorbidities and mental health issues who was struggling and was put down this path instead of given the help I actually needed. All right. Luca Hine claims the staff rushed her to transition from a woman to a man, probably better described from a girl to a boy. She was just 16 years old at the time. The complaint alleges that she had a double mastectomy after only two doctor's appointments, just two consultations and claims the transition left her physically and psychologically scarred. This is the fifth lawsuit that we know about involving people who felt rushed into making a stark, life-changing decision when they were barely old enough to drive. Not just in Nebraska. We've seen it in Utah and at the Houston, Texas Children's Hospital here now. Director of the Center for American Liberty and Luca's attorney, Mark Trammell. Mark, it's good to see you. Thank you. Look, there's a lot of times that private attorneys suing individuals in civil court can accomplish things that the federal government or the state governments cannot. I'm thinking about how the Southern Poverty Law Center put the Ku Klux Klan out of business. Is that sort of what you guys are trying to do here is scare uh, medical centers and doctors into stopping this? Yeah, I wouldn't say we're trying to scare. I, I think the goal here is to get Luca justice. She's she's suffered a, a, a tremendous injury at the hand of the new the University of Nebraska Medical Center, um, and and she deserves to recover damages for that injury. Now, I think the broader impact of these lawsuits. Now, um, the Center for American Liberty we're, we're handling three of these lawsuits. We also represent Layla Jane and Chloe Cole in their lawsuits in California against Kaiser. And in this lawsuit here in Nebraska, on behalf of Luca, we're working with our, our great friends over at the Thomas More Society to, uh, again, to get Luca justice. But I think broadly, when you look at all of these lawsuits, they're really starting to, to stack up, right? This is on the rise. I think it's going to have a deterrent impact on, on hospitals and doctors that are considering this type of barbaric procedure on minors. Right. Uh, but, but, Mark, with uh, widely we, accepted medical standards. How do we square the circle, though? On one hand, I've got you saying that this must stop because it's a barbaric 
uh, procedure on minors. And then on the other hand, I'm, I, I can get a doctor from one of these centers on, if they'll talk, uh, who will say not doing these procedures is equally barbaric because uh, the trans youth is, is more likely to commit suicide. And if you deny them this medical care, then they are going uh, to suffer irreparable harm, irreparable harm. So which is it? Yeah. So if you if you double down and ask these these medical providers where those scientific studies come from, um, they don't exist. These are talking points provided by special interest groups that have uh, that have poured a tremendous amount of resources and money uh, to make this widely accepted uh, by the left uh, and only by the left. And I think if you look at at, at respectable studies. Um, we see that this type of procedure, especially when it comes to, to right, right. women. Let me, let me, uh, let me, I just got to get this I in before, before we go. How much of this do you all think is about money? Because there's huge money to be made by these universities and in, in these procedures. How much of this is about money and how much of it is about, and I'm going to use this term broadly, but politics and the, the feeling of social acceptance in, uh, by these doctors? Well, undoubtedly, I think what we're seeing here is the elevation of political science over actual medical real data. Um, but you're right. Money is a huge, a huge factor here. Big Pharma makes an enormous amount of money when a child starts taking uh, testosterone and puberty blockers because they're going to have to stay on those drugs for the rest of their lives. Um, so, yeah, there's a there's a huge financial incentive uh, to start this irreversible treatment as young as possible. And that's another reason why these lawsuits are so important. That's why we're so proud to be representing Luca Hine, because her story uh, really, I think, pulls the curtain back on, on what's really going on. I mean, she was 16 years old and they performed a radical double mastectomy on her that, again, incongruent with uh, right. even even no, transgender right, right, right. I, I got it. Classified. No, I, no, I, yeah, I'm sorry. I got it. All right. Thank you. You're a passionate advocate. We admire it. Obviously, we've, we've reached out to the, the folks in Nebraska. They've refused to comment on this. But somebody from the other side is always welcome uh, to come on. We appreciate you, you being here with us. Thank you. Uh, staying on the theme of universities, the University of Pennsylvania professes tolerance of everything, safe spaces for everyone. Unless, of course, you're Jewish. Why virulent anti-Semitism from the left is celebrated on some college campuses, plus pandemic politics now spread faster than the disease itself. Boosters, masks, COVID mandates. Oh, just when they thought they were over. Welcome back. Not only did you not fire Fauci, who is loathed by many, many millions of Republicans in particular, but also some Democrats. By the way, you made him a star. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. On the holiest day of the Jewish faith that's coming up, the University of Pennsylvania saw fit to schedule an event called, and we have a quote here, the Palestine Writers Literature Festival. 
That's what they call it. In fact, it's a very thinly veiled meeting of the left's most virulent and hateful anti-Semites. The university appears to have no problem with the list of speakers. Among them, Salman Abu Sita, who once said of Israel, the Jewish state has an insatiable lust for blood. Then there's Bill Mullen, a professor who says he wants to de-Zionize American college campuses. Also speaking, Susan Abdallawala, who said Israel's actions are worse than the Nazis, who, of course, wiped out six million Jews, leading to the creation of modern-day Israel. Mark Lamont Hill, famously fired from CNN for calling to free Palestine from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. That is, of course, a chant used by Hamas terrorists, which means the complete destruction of the Jewish state. All invited speakers. And then there is Pink Floyd frontman Roger Waters, who constantly uses anti-Semitic tropes and just wore an SS Nazi uniform, held a rifle, and projected the words Anne Frank at his recent concert in Berlin. He says he was protesting fascism. The school says we unequivocally and emphatically condemn anti-Semitism as antithetical to our institutional values. As a university, we also fiercely support the free exchange of ideas as central to our education mission. This includes the expression of views that are controversial and even those that are incompatible with our institutional values. With, with us now, Bacha Unger Sargon, opinion editor at Newsweek. Um, I think the university statement would have a lot more credibility if they welcomed and protected conservative speakers, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's so funny because today we're learning how much Democrats like supporting gun owners when they happen to be named, you know, Hunter Biden. And it's the same thing happening here. Suddenly the left finds its voice for defending free speech when the victims of this free speech are Jews, right? I mean, there's a great book called Jews Don't Count, and it explains why it is that whenever it comes to these high-minded ideals of safe spaces and protecting people and protecting their identity and their right to their, you know, to just be protected from virulent hatred against their kind, suddenly none of those rules apply anymore to Jewish students. Well, yeah, but it applies, of course, only to Jewish students to be to be subjected to hate from the left, right? If Nick Fuentes wanted to show up, virulent anti-Semite, uh, supporter of Donald Trump, he would he, I can imagine, not be allowed. The Daily Pennsylvanian. Why Penn should protect its students from colonial backlash? The Palestinian, rights, uh, Palestinian Writers Literature Festival is set to take place at Penn, September 22nd through 24th. Shocking that they would schedule it over Yom Kippur. The festival is a place for Palestinian artists and writers to convene, share their works and narratives, and celebrate Palestinian culture and resilience. This is UPenn's diversity and inclusion uh, statement or value set. Penn is a place with deep-seated values that reflect respect for all and a sincere commitment to service diversity in all forms and to creating conditions where all can thrive so we as a Penn community have our greatest impact on the world. I, what I can't, what I keep going back to, and you and I have talked about this before, but why anti-Semitism on the left seems to be the only acceptable form of hate to academics and to the, the sort of the, the most elite of liberal progressive thinking. Yeah, because in the woke worldview, where you take a worldview that's supposed to be based on right versus wrong, good versus evil, and you replace it with a worldview where it's powerful versus powerless, and then you superimpose race onto that, right? So white people are inherently evil, and people of color are inherently virtuous because they have less power. In that model, which is the reigning worldview of the left right now, Jews are put in the white category, and so they are viewed as oppressors. And just like you're allowed to say any manner of hateful things about white people, you're also allowed to do the same towards Jews. Hmm. 
scary, scary world we live in, something that you've written a lot about and studied a, a lot, Bacha. All right, we're going to follow this. We'll see what happens um, over Yom Kippur at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. And obviously, we'll have to have you back to talk about it. Thank you. Thanks, Leland. This week, the CDC has updated their COVID-19 vaccination guidelines. CDC Director Mandy Cohen is advising anyone six months and older to get at least one dose of the updated booster shot. That basically means everybody. We asked former Vice President Mike Pence about it last night during the town hall. The CDC just told everyone to get a booster today. Is that something that you're going to do? Well, I, I'm, I'm a little concerned about reading press accounts that uh, this, this booster hasn't been subject to tests that are common for approving medicine. Hmm. And cases of COVID are up. Obviously not to anywhere close to the levels they were during the pandemic. 18,000 hospitalizations for August to September. The death rate's at 2.1%. Comparatively, we are doing just fine. Liberty Vitter's here, host of MIT's data science podcast, Data Nation. So much of what we are told about COVID revolves around data. Are we now at the time where scientists have said, okay, we're going to take a step back here, examine the risks of COVID to healthy young Americans and the risks of the vaccines? That would be the smart thing to do, but that is clearly not where we are because the CDC has recommended that everyone get these vac- these vaccine boosters who are over the age of six months old. We are living in a crazy time at a time where people are healthy enough and COVID is low enough that we should be taking a step back and looking at the data, but we're not. We are not looking at the safety and efficacy of these vaccine boosters like we should be. We don't know if they're safe or not. We ha- don't have data on it. Um, Pfizer only did this on mice. They haven't even done it on people, the trials for this booster. So we just don't know. And in terms of efficacy, the vaccine is supposed to prevent hospitalizations and severe illness. If you are young and healthy and you have been vaccinated, you are not going to the hospital when you get COVID. So there's no point in taking a vaccine booster. You obviously live in the scientific community. You, you teach at a number of these universities. Help us understand what is happening in the scientific community that of all the things that the scientists say we must study and that we're going to have thought about and hypothesis and challenges to, why COVID is still off limits? Somehow the COVID vaccine zealots have basically hijacked this entire vaccine discussion, lowering the public's trust in science beyond anything we've ever seen. Pre-pandemic, only 13% of the American public felt that they didn't have trust in scientific community to do the right decisions for the American public. Now we have over 50% of the American public who don't trust scientific institutions to do the right thing for us. That is a real problem, not just with the COVID vaccine, but with all vaccines. We're seeing lower rates of polio vaccinations, MMR vaccinations, vaccinations that we need to keep America safe from another type of pandemic. Is there any V8 moment, an aha moment within the scientific community? Is there any sort of self-awareness of what's happening and the dangers that you just laid out? Well, you see it in Florida. They're pausing this. They're saying we only recommend it for people who are over Over the age of 65. But It's only America where this is happening. The UK is only recommending it for people over the age of 65 and people who are at severe risk for illness. I mean, something is happening in America with the scientific community where we have allowed these COVID vaccine zealots to just take over. Interesting. So so when you talk to scientists overseas, when you go to these studies and conferences all over the world, what do they say? 
They are not recommending what the United States CDC but, uh, is do, recommending. Do they, do they look at what's happening to science in America and kind of look at you guys and be like, huh? People aren't allowed to question it because all of a sudden, no matter who you are, whether you're a scientist abroad or you're a scientist here, you are somehow a bad person if you say you shouldn't get this COVID vaccine booster. Huh? It's, a, it's a really dangerous world that we're living in for the scientific community and the American public in general. Well, and a lot of doctors will tell you, not necessarily brave enough to do so on TV, that they're worried about what happens when the next pandemic comes. Because if you're if you don't have trust uh, and then something really bad comes along, what do we do? All right. Liberty, thank you very much. Thank you. Our town hall with Mike Pence last night got picked up around the world, literally, for what the vice president said. It was a newsy event. Next, we'll examine what the presidential candidate was trying to say with his body language. We're going to find that person who is the best qualified, the best prepared, and the, and the most committed to the agenda that we felt called to advance. Well, first, let me say, you know, one of the things I've realized since I left office is that I'm, I'm well known, but I'm not known well. Most people know me as that loyal vice president standing alongside the president. That was Mike Pence last night at our News Nation Town Hall. All right. Mike Pence said a lot. I got picked up by newspapers around the world. But as somebody who's covered Mike Pence for a long time, his body language was different than normal. There was things he was trying to say, even if you were watching on mute. There were moments where he sat, stood, smiles, jokes, cocked his head. It all seemed as though he was trying to present a, a certain very clear image uh, of himself. Body language expert Patty Wood is with us to help break that down. All right, so uh, I want to start with you, Patty. Um, this is Mike Pence reacting to a woman uh, who has a transgender child. Take a listen. What is your policy plan to protect the transgender community, specifically black and brown trans women, from historically high levels of violence? Well, Melissa, let me say, I, I, uh, I'm deeply grieved to hear about those tragic circumstances. And, uh, and I hear your heart. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm moved by your emotion. I truly am. Thoughts? Well, good and bad. Um, at the beginning, we have that deep, resonant voice of his that uh, indicates strength and power. And there's that hint of emotional uh, matching, matching her grief. But what you missed is right after he finished saying that, he smirked. So he twisted his mouth. And what happens is if you are saying one thing but feeling another, the, your true emotional state will flash across the side of your face before the other side can control and suppress how you truly feel. So he discounted that seemingly great uh, empathetic response with a smirk. And he did that over seven times last night, which hmm. actually indicates there's a lot of things he's saying but not truly feeling. All right, fair enough. And, and look, you, the American people or, or viewers may not necessarily know why they're picking up on on a feeling of, of inauthenticity or a, a feeling of not sure about this, but you, you were able to identify this. This is when we were talking about 
Uh, his longtime marriage to Karen Pence and the, the rules and the ways in which he conducts himself, it's been well reported on. Uh, take a listen. One of the things uh, that has been said about how you conduct your personal life is you will not eat alone or, or meet alone with, with a woman. Um, one of the hallmarks of your presidency and one of the things that was reported on a lot was your private lunches one-on-one with Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. How would that work out if you had a female vice president? Well, I, that's, a, that's a very clever question. It really is. <laughs> I, I sort of took that as he was trying to buy time. Uh, there's so many tells in this. Um, first of all, he interlocks his fingers over his private parts because it's a sexual-oriented question. Then he tilts away. Then he does a suit adjustment that covers up his heart. Again, his true emotional state he wants to protect. And finally, the corner of his mouth pulled down tightly And he's actually suppressing anger. The reason I know it's anger is he tightens at the eyes and has that crumbly bit at the chin as he responds. Uh, I I think that's probably a pretty fair assessment based on on a few other things that I heard last last night, maybe uh, off camera. So there there you go. I think he wasn't expecting it. Um, people People can be surprised in these things. It was interesting. This was the first town hall we did where people, where we stood up. We had lit the stage so he was able to stand up and move around a little bit. I was as well and be able to interact um, with with the audience. This is me asking him about Donald Trump. Take a listen. You've said this on the campaign trail. You answered a question to me about this, that there are things that there are times that principle is more important right. than, than politics. You signed the pledge to get on the debate stage that you would support the eventual nominee. Mm-hmm. Does that mean you would support Donald Trump? And how is that not putting politics ahead of principle? I haven't been able to watch the tape back, obviously, because we, we flew in flew in this morning and prepped for today's show. Right. He wouldn't even look at me. It was so bizarre. And I've been watching interactions like this for 20 years for presidents and presidential hopefuls. Um, what this lack of orienting his body towards you, the host, allows him to do is we don't see his true emotional state in response to each of your questions. Instead, it allows him to go to talking points. Ah, but the body can't lie. So when you ask the question, he actually pushes you down. There's a downward sweep away motion because you ask him a negatively oriented question. So he goes, no, and pushes you away with his body. Can't hide how he truly feels. Yeah, it seemed as though that it was almost like he wanted to just sort of address the audience at times. And it, it, look, in, in, in a way, and maybe I'm... But he wasn't maybe really I'm, even looking at them as... Um, I'm a professional speaker. I've written books on public speaking. He wasn't really giving out his energy and orienting and really yeah. looking at them. It's It was odd. It just felt... A lot of times I felt odd. like when he was talking... In, if you, you look at some of the tight shots, and look, I think it was very clever, is that he would he would maybe listen to me, my question, then he would turn to the audience so that if you wanted to try to ask a redirect or you wanted to try to get his attention back, you, you meaning me, had to sort of come in around him almost. It was as though he wanted to command the stage, which I guess if you want to be president of the United States makes a lot of sense. Right, but it, it, it had a cost to it. Because he wasn't having a true conversation. He was going, again, directly to talking points, which seemed very artificial and felt odd to us. Hmm. 
All right, Patty, you've now, you've now been able to articulate what so many people were feeling and discussing. We appreciate it. Uh, it's always fun. It's always fun to have you. Fascinating, too. We learn something new every week. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Coming up, NASA has vowed to answer a question that man has been asking since prehistoric times. What does NASA say about all these UFOs? My personal answer is yes. Leave it to Steven Spielberg to prove that communicating with aliens is actually possible. That film came out in 1977, and we have yet to hear from any extraterrestrials since. But NASA says they're not giving up hope, because while today they announced that they have yet to find any concrete evidence of UFOs, UAPs, or anything else from outer space, they did stress they will continue to analyze the data to understand other encounters they still can't explain. Chris Cuomo is here. All I have to say, Chris, is that clearly NASA has not been watching News Nation. <laughs> it's true. Uh, well, I hope they have, because it will certainly make them smarter and a little bit more aware of where the regular people in this country are in terms of their heads and hearts. Uh, but there are UFOs. OK, there are UAPs. There's no question about it. Uh, the issue is, what does the government know and why does it believe that nothing is a an adequate standard of transparency. Transparency breeds trust. Are there little green men? I doubt that they have any evidence of it, but in terms of the possibility, of course there's a possibility. All we know about the universe is that every time we're able to measure it better, it's bigger than we thought it was. This is about what do you know about these things that have been flying around? Where are they coming from? What are we doing with them? You work for us. Who do you have tonight? Who do you have tonight on this? You guys have been leading the leading the way on this. So we are going to have Lieutenant Ryan Graves on. He was one of the witnesses at the hearing, and he and I are going to have a friendly debate about this NASA report. Here's what I don't like about it. It's only based on declassified or unclassified information. That's going to be unsatisfying. He will argue why it's a step in the right direction and what has to happen next. We will see. We also have Governor Chris Christie on and Andrew Yang. It was, in, it was interesting. We asked Mike Pence about this last night. I don't know if you saw, but he, he was unconvinced yeah. as well. He said he's been to Area 51. He said, he said there's, nothing, there's nothing that doesn't look like you and I wandering around there. So we'll see. Maybe, maybe everybody knows things and they're, they're not telling us. Um, all right. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be interesting to see Chris Christie tonight. I'm, I'm going to be staying up for that. Chris, good to see you. We'll wait for you in a couple of minutes. Uh, you know, Chris, you know the, the old saying, birds of a feather flock together. Yeah, well, there's there's another bird of a similar feather to Elizabeth Holmes in prison, who she's getting friendly with when we come back. And the show on a happy note, friends and friends are good things, especially in prison. Elizabeth Holmes evidently has one. People is reporting Jen Shaw of Real Housewives fame has bonded with Elizabeth Holmes in prison. A rep confirms they are indeed friends. There's that old saying, birds of a feather flock together. Convicted fraudster Elizabeth Holmes, as you probably remember, is behind bars for lying to investors about her blood testing startup Theranos. She defrauded hundreds of millions of dollars from her victims. More importantly, a number of people thought they had 
incurable diseases or missed critical diagnoses because of her fraudulent machines. Then there's Jen Shaw, who went after the elderly. She organized a telemarketing scam that targeted hundreds of older people nationwide, robbing many of them of their retirement. Now they're buddies in federal prison camp. Evidently, they do ab workouts together. They've each got at least another five years in jail to continue the friendship. Here's Chris. Hey, I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Thursday. We're live. Yep, 